0: behind the knife the surgery podcast where we take a behind the scenes intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field hey everyone welcome back to behind the knife uh this week on the podcast we have our second grand round series Uh, Dr. Jennifer LaFamina from the University of Massachusetts has graciously uh, sent us a great rundown on melanoma, uh, as well as the treatment and management. Additionally, if anybody has any ideas uh, to include topics or guests for our Grand Rounds series, send them our way. Enjoy. Good afternoon. My name is Jennifer LaFamina, and I am a surgical oncologist from the University of Massachusetts. I want to thank you for allowing me Uh, to talk with you today about the surgical management of melanoma. Today, we're really going to focus our discussion on the surgical management of the primary lesion, the regional lymphatics, and to some extent, the management of metastatic disease. First and foremost, prior to the 1980s, the 5-centimeter margin was the standard therapy for the resection of primary melanomas, As you might imagine, this nearly universally required skin grafting. Over the number of years, a number of trials have been conducted as to establish the optimal margins for resection. What is important to note is that no trial has ever demonstrated a survival difference with more aggressive surgical margins. Ultimately, we will go through the individual studies, but a one centimeter margin is optimal for lesions less than a millimeter deep, two centimeter margins for lesions more than two millimeters deep. No randomized control trial has demonstrated a difference in one or two centimeter margins for lesions that are one to two millimeters deep. And to date, no randomized control trial has addressed resection margins for deep or more than four millimeter melanomas of the primary lesion. Let us first look at the thin melanomas. In the 1980s, Veronese first published a study in the New England Journal evaluating melanomas less than two millimeters deep that were randomized to one versus three centimeter margins. The study enrolled about 612 patients. And ultimately, like all the other studies we will discuss, there was no significant difference in overall or disease-free survival. Four patients had local recurrence as the first site of relapse, and all were in patients whose melanomas were initially greater than a millimeter deep. Therefore, the conclusion of the Varanisi study was that one-centimeter margins were safe, particularly for lesions less than or equal to a millimeter in thickness. The intergroup trial with the first author, Dr. Balch, was published initially in 1993, the group lifted primary melanomas that were intermediate or 1 to 4 millimeters deep, and patients were randomized to 1 versus 4 centimeter margins. The primary endpoints, again, were overall and disease-free survival. The group showed no significant difference in local recurrence, disease-free survival, or overall survival. And with the smaller 2 centimeter margins, the need for skin grafting was reduced to 11% from 46%. In this study, the group showed that higher rates of local recurrence were found with ulcerated lesions, but this risk was not impacted by margins. Overall, though, if local recurrence occurred, this was associated with a poor survival of 9%, 5-year overall survival, compared to 86%, and those did not the conclusion of the intergroup trial, therefore, was that two centimeter margins were safe in intermediate or one to four millimeter melanomas. Moving on now to the Swedish trial, this trial evaluated primary melanomas from 0.8 to two millimeters deep. The patient populations were randomized to two versus five centimeter margins and included 769 patients over an approximately eight year period. Similar to prior studies, the primary endpoints were disease free and overall survival. Also similar to prior trials, results of 11 years of follow-up showed no significant difference in either overall survival, disease-free survival, or overall survival. And similarly, smaller margins, in this case 2 centimeters, were associated with a significant reduction in the need for skin grafting. The conclusion was that 2 centimeter margins were safe for the 0.8 to 2 millimeter melanomas. This led to the conclusion that a 2 centimeter margin was safe for the 0.8 to 2 millimeter melanoma. Moving on now to the 2003 French trial. The investigators here assess primary melanomas less than or equal to 2 millimeters in depth. The patients were randomized to 2 versus 5 centimeter margins. In the 326 patients evaluated over a 19-year period, the primary endpoints were disease-free and overall survival, with a secondary endpoint evaluating the role of adjuvant natural killer cell immunomodulatory agents. After 16 years of follow-up, there again is no difference in local recurrence, disease-free survival or overall survival, and there was no impact of the natural killer cell immunomodulatory agent. The final conclusion was that 2-centimeter margins were safe for melanomas less than or equal to 2 millimeters deep. Now, as previously discussed, there is no randomized controlled trial to date that has evaluated the deep melanomas more than 4 millimeters. However, the UK trial by Thomas et al. in 2004, published in the New England Journal, evaluated patients with primary melanomas of at least 2 millimeters. These patients were randomized to one versus three centimeter margin, and the median tumor thickness of these patients' tumors was three millimeters, with 25% of them being greater than four millimeters. 900 patients were evaluated over a seven-year period. After five years of follow-up, there was no significant difference in overall local or regional recurrence, disease-specific survival, or overall survival. There was a slight increase in the pooled local regional recurrence in the one versus three centimeter margin group. And the final conclusion of the study was that a one centimeter margin for melanomas greater than two millimeters was associated with an increased risk of local regional recurrence compared to those patients undergoing a three centimeter margin. It is with this data that the recommendation for a 2-centimeter margin for melanomas greater than 2 millimeters has been made. There are a number of beautiful summaries of the trials on margins in the resection of primary melanoma. For reference, Dr. Egermont's paper in SOCNA from 2006 or Dr. Ott's paper in SOCNA in 2011 are great references for further information. However, the take-home point, again, is that no trial has ever demonstrated a survival difference with more aggressive surgical margins. And in those patients who do have a local recurrence, this is associated with a poor overall survival. In conclusion, for those melanomas that are less than a millimeter deep, a one-centimeter margin is acceptable. For those melanomas greater than two millimeters deep, a two-centimeter margin is acceptable. For those melanomas that are one to two millimeters deep, a one to two centimeter margin is acceptable, and no randomized controlled trial has demonstrated a benefit of one or the other. And no randomized controlled trial to date has assessed the proper resection margins for melanomas more than four millimeters deep. In these cases, the tumor biology is being dictated by distant disease. We're next going to move on to treatment of the regional lymphatics. We will discuss the role of elective lymph node dissection the role of prophylactic isolated limb perfusion and isolated limb infusion. And most importantly, we'll focus our discussion on the sentinel lymph node biopsy and the data behind it, really focusing our attention on two major landmark studies, including MSLT1 and MSLT2. First, though, before we go into the data, let us talk about the operation itself. First and foremost, when performing a wide local excision, It's important to identify the biopsy site of the melanoma to plan your proper circumferential margins. If central node is going to be performed during the operation, prior to the operation, the patients typically go to the radiology suite where sulfur colloid is injected into the melanoma site, a lymphocintigraphy is taken. It is important to personally review the lymphocintigraphy and to note the proper regional basins, For instance, if there is a mid-torso melanoma, it is proper to look at both the axillary and inguinal nodal basins. For instance, after an injection of a mid-torso melanoma, if the imaging demonstrates pictures only from the axillary region, be sure to ask also for the groin images as well. The same applies for mapping procedures done of lower arm and lower leg melanomas. While it's less typical for melanomas to match to the epitrocular or basins, it is important to ensure that you have looked at these basins as well to perform a proper mapping. After the lymphocentigraphy is performed, the patient comes to the preoperative holding area. Typically, I confirm with the patient the site of the melanoma as well as the site where the central node biopsy will be performed. The patient is then taken into the operating room, placed in proper positioning. After The anesthesia is administered. Typically, I mark the standard margins for the melanoma. I then inject uh, methylene blue dye intradermally around the melanoma in four quadrants. Typically, we inject no more than one milliliter of methylene blue. And many times, I actually inject slightly less. I then massage the site for five minutes. During this time, I'm also confirming the radioactive signal with the probe. At this point, after the patient is prepped and draped, I resect the melanoma first, incising the skin with the scalpel, deepening the area with electric cautery to the level of the fascia, orienting the specimen for submission to pathology for permanent evaluation. We then proceed with the sentinel node biopsy procedure, performing an incision over the point of maximal signal, typically performing blunt and sharp dissection, identification of sentinel nodes that have radioactive dye, blue dye, or both, or are palpable. The endpoint of the operation is the removal of all nodes that have blue dye, are palpable, and to clear radioactive signals, so there is less than 10% of the hottest node present in the Bed count. The first major study to discuss is the MSLT1 study published by Dr. Mornet et al. in September of 2006 in the New England Journal of Medicine. The author's hypothesis was that sentinel node biopsy was highly predictive of survival and melanoma, and sentinel node biopsy properly identifies patients who will subsequently benefit from a completion lymph node dissection. The primary endpoint of the study was disease-specific survival. Patients were eligible if they had primary melanomas that were considered to be intermediate thickness or 1.2 to 3.5 millimeter deep. The median fall was approaching 60 months. If you've not read this paper, I would strongly urge you to do so as it is a beautiful example of a surgical trial. I'm going to summarize the study design. Patients with intermediate thickness melanomas were randomized either to wide local excision and central node biopsy or wide local excision and nodal observation. In the patient's randomized to wide excision and central node biopsy, if their central nodes were positive, they went on to completion lymph node dissection. And for those that were negative, they proceeded down a course of observation. Within this group, if nodal recurrence occurred, uh, the patients subsequently underwent a delayed completion lymph node dissection. However, if no nodal recurrence occurred... Occurred, they continued under observation. In the 40% of patients who were assigned to wide excision with nodal observation, patients underwent a delayed completion lymph node dissection in the presence of nodal recurrence but underwent continued observation if no nodal reoccurrence was observed. In this study, the false negative group was the group who was sentinel node negative who underwent observation and subsequently developed nodal recurrence. And the true incidence of clinical nodal metastasis was the group undergoing wide local excision and subsequently developed nodal recurrence. Interestingly, this group was 16% in both populations, which is seen on Table 1. A number of findings were reported. The first was five-year melanoma-specific survival. When comparing the groups that underwent sentinel node biopsy to those who underwent observation, there was no difference in five-year melanoma or disease-specific survival. The disease-free survival rate among those who underwent sentinel lymph node biopsy was higher than that in the observation group with a significant p-value of 0.009. The data clearly demonstrated that melanoma-specific survival was significantly greater in the group that had a negative sentinel lymph node biopsy. Of this group, 90% of patients had a five-year melanoma-specific survival compared to 72% in the group that had a positive central node biopsy. This speaks to that the presence of metastasis in the central node as hypothesized by the authors was, in fact, the most important prognostic factor between groups. The authors then completed a subgroup analysis, which is seen in Figure 3, and if you've not read this paper, I would urge you to review this particular data. An analysis was conducted comparing the group who had a positive central lymph node and proceeded with an immediate completion lymph node dissection. And this group was compared against the group who underwent wide excision with observation of the regional lymphatics and who subsequently developed regional disease and underwent a delayed lymph node dissection. In this analysis, those patients who underwent an immediate lymph node dissection in the setting of a positive central node had a significantly greater five-year melanoma-specific survival compared to those who underwent a delayed lymph node dissection. The final conclusion of this subgroup analysis was that the survival rate was higher among those who underwent immediate lymph node dissection compared to those that underwent a delayed lymph node dissection in the presence of nodal metastasis. However, this data analysis has been heavily Evaluated as the subgroup analysis was not powered to answer this specific question. Therefore, let us summarize the number of take home points from MSLT1. In fact, the sentinel node status is highly prognostic in intermediate thickness melanomas, with survival reduced in those patients with a positive sentinel node. Ultimately, while the study was not entirely powered to assess the difference in survival associated with an immediate compared to a delayed lymph node dissection in the presence of micrometastatic regional disease, the final conclusion was that the five-year survival rate was higher in those with immediate reconstruction compared to those in whom lymph node dissection was performed in a delayed fashion, such as in the observation group. There's certainly a number of additional findings that came out of the study, the first of which is that approximately 16% of patients in the group that had a positive central node was relatively similar to the 16% in those who were found to have clinically evident disease in the observation group this suggests that there is a natural progression of those with positive micrometastasis disease and ultimately if this is not resected patients will develop clinically positive nodal disease there's certainly a number of other questions that are raised by this study namely how a difference in disease specific survival does not translate into a difference in overall survival and also the question of what is the real survival benefit if there is a 16% benefit in 16% of the population. But I think for the purpose of this podcast, let us focus on the major findings of the study as they were reported. In 2014, the MSLT1 investigators followed uh, their initial report with a 10-year follow-up data published in the New England Journal of Medicine. In this study, the group provided follow-up not only those patients with intermediate thickness melanomas, but also those with thick or greater than 3.5 millimeter melanomas. While there was no difference in disease-specific survival over the 10-year period for patients either with intermediate or thick melanomas, both groups demonstrated a significant benefit in disease-free survival if they were randomized to the central node biopsy as opposed to the observation groups. In an editorial that accompanied this paper, the authors noted that in theory, delayed lymph node dissection provided an opportunity for dissemination of regional disease. The data also supported that Early or immediate lymph node dissection in the patients who had a positive sentinel node in the setting of intermediate melanoma was associated with a significant improvement in 10-year disease-specific survival as well as disease-free survival. However, in those patients who had deep melanomas, immediate Lymph node dissection was not associated with a 10-year improvement in disease-specific survival, but was still associated with an improvement in 10-year disease-free survival. Ultimately, though, with MSLT1 data, when initially published, this led to a national standard that in those patients with regional metastasis, axillary lymph node dissection would be offered. As you know, axillary lymph node dissection is associated with a number of complications, including a risk of nerve injury, such as to the long thoracic and thoracodorsal nerve, estimated at approximately 1%, and a risk of lymphedema, which can estimate at approximately 20%. Given the initial limitations of MSLT1, future studies have sought to answer the question whether, in fact, there is a true survival benefit to immediate lymph node dissection in the presence of stage 3 disease. The first study that was published to address this question was the DCOG SLT study, which was published in Lancet Oncology in 2016 by authors Leiter et al. This was a multi-center randomized phase three trial involving 41 German skin cancer centers. In this study, patients with primary melanomas aged 18 to 75 with melanomas at least one millimeter deep and micrometastasis in the central node were randomized in a one-to-one fashion to observation versus immediate completion lymph node dissection. This trial was closed early due to difficulties in enrollment and low event rate and therefore is underpowered. However, while underpowered, the data demonstrates that there is no significant difference between immediate lymph node dissection and observation in terms of outcomes including distant metastasis-free survival, overall survival, and recurrence-free survival. In those patients who underwent completion lymph node dissection, 6% of patients experienced grade 3 adverse events, and 8% of patients experienced grade 4 adverse events. These events included lymphedema, lymphatic fistula, seroma, infection, and delayed wound healing. The conclusion of the study was that routine, immediate completion lymph node dissection should not be offered to patients with melanomas who are found to have regional micrometastasis of at least a diameter of one millimeter or smaller. The most recent study, MSLT2, which was published in the New England Journal in June of 2017, now substantiates the DCOG SLT trial, demonstrating that immediate completion lymph node dissection offers no increase in melanoma-specific survival compared to active ultrasonographic surveillance of the nodal basin. Like MSLT1, I encourage listeners to read this landmark paper that is surely practice-changing. MSLT2 is designed as a randomized, multi-center, international, phase 3 trial involving 63 centers. Patients aged 18 to 75 were randomized if they had the presence of a clinically localized cutaneous melanoma, an ECOG performance status of 0 to 1, a non-melanoma-related life expectancy of 10 years or greater, and a tumor positive sentinel node. Subjects were randomized in one-one fashion, either to immediate completion lymph node dissection or to the observation arm. Patients in the observation arm were monitored every four months times two years, followed by every six months through years three to five and then annually thereafter. Ultrasound of the nodal basin was conducted at each visit for the first five years. The methods section of the manuscript describes nodal evaluation. Figure one in this manuscript describes a study schema. Ultimately, 3,531 patients were enrolled in the study. Patients were first stratified into pathologic central node positivity or negativity. Those patients who were central node negative underwent RT PCR of the central nodes. Those patients who were found to have a positive central node either by pathologic assessment or RT PCR assay were then randomized either to immediate completion lymph node dissection or to observation as previously summarized. The primary conclusion of the study is that there is no difference in three-year melanoma-specific survival between those undergoing immediate lymph node dissection and those undergoing observation, either in per protocol or intention-to-treat analysis. Additionally, even when adjusting for additional prognostic factors, there remains no significant difference in melanoma-specific survival. Similar to the DCOG-SLT trial, there is no significant difference between distant metastasis-free survival between groups. Not surprisingly, those who undergo an immediate lymph node dissection have a lower rate of nodal recurrence, which as Dr. Coyd points out in his subsequent editorial on the paper, typically can be successfully treated with delayed lymph node dissection. The authors also evaluated additional prognostic factors and found that in the 11.5% of subjects who were found to have non-central node metastasis, this was associated with a strong independent risk of recurrence. Not surprisingly, there was a significant difference in adverse events between two groups with 24.1% of patients in the dissection group developing lymphedema compared to 6.3% in the observation group. So in short, a number of really landmark findings have come out of MSLT2. First, immediate completion lymph node dissection in the setting of a positive sentinel node does not increase melanoma-specific survival, and therefore immediate lymph node dissection is no longer considered to be mandatory in this setting. Similar to the DCOG SLT trial, MSLT2 has also shown that active surveillance with Clinical examination and ultrasound is safe and efficient at identifying patients who may be offered a delayed completion lymph node dissection. MSLT2 also offers the benefit that we now know that non sentinel node status is an important prognostic factor in patients with sentinel node positive disease. Finally, and not surprisingly, there is a significant difference in adverse events in this form of lymphedema in those undergoing lymph node dissection compared to those who undergo observation alone. Certainly, this landmark paper has now heralded in a new time in which we might see that routine completion lymph node dissection in the immediate setting is no longer mandatory after identification of a positive sentinel node for cutaneous melanoma. Next, we're going to transition and discuss the role of elective lymph node dissection. But before doing so, I wanted to spend some time taking you through the procedure of a radical groin dissection. The superficial femoral triangle is defined as the sartorius muscle laterally, the adductor magnus and pectineus muscles medially, and the inguinal ligament superiorly. The femoral canal is, consists of the lymphatics including Cloquet's node medially, proceeding laterally, the common femoral vein, the common femoral artery, and most laterally the common femoral nerve. As you proceed cephalad, just above and deep to the inguinal ligament, the common femoral vessels become the external iliac vessels. Which, as you continue to proceed more cephalad, will bring you to the bifurcation of the internal and external iliac vessels. At the bifurcation, you will encounter the saphenous vein at the inferior apex of the femoral triangle, as defined at the junction of the adductor magnus and the sartorius muscles. Ultimately, we will proceed cephalad and drain into the femoral vein at the sapheno-femoral junction. Typically, I will not employ fully catheterization unless I expect a complicated or prolonged course. The patient is positioned in the supine position with venadines placed if there is no contraindication, the hip is slightly abducted, and the knee flexed. There are many variations in the incision, but typically these are oriented in a vertical orientation that traverses the groin crease. I typically will employ a gentle S-curve starting approximately two centimeters medial to the ASIS, and many times I will harvest a small skin island overlying the femoral triangle. Skin flaps are raised Deep discarpus fascia circumferentially around the planned lymph node dissection basin. I carry my transection laterally to the sartorius, medially to the adductor magnus, and inferior to the point where the muscles cross and the saphenous vein first enters the apex of the femoral triangle. The superior dissection is carried five to six centimeters or so to encompass the fiber, fatty, and lymphatic tissue overlying the inguinal ligament. Dissection is then carried medially to the external ring and men the spermatic cord. The dissection proceeds to the pubic tubercle and then down to the adductor magnus and pectineus. There is some controversy about whether or not to ligate the saphenous vein as well as the harvest of the fascia. These represent variations on the operation. If one were to take the saphenous vein, they would likely like it at this point in the operation as they encounter it in the apex of the femoral triangle. Here's where the surgeon will encounter the femoral triangle. Great care is taken to control the small arterial and venous branches that one will encounter and being clear to clear the lymphatic tissue off the uh, femoral vessels. Proceeding cephalad, the surgeon will now encounter the femoral canal. Typically here I insert my finger into the femoral canal and gently try to deliver a node. Sometimes it helps to insert a ladyfinger or other retractor to elevate the inguinal ligament to assist in visualization if possible. Cloquet's node is considered the bridge to the superficial and deep components and sometimes may assist in decision making. Typically at this point, the surgeon will start closure. It is important to reapproximate the femoral canal if it is at risk of femoral hernia and this may be done by reapproximating the inguinal ligament to the lacunar ligament, much like one would do in McVay's repair for a femoral hernia. The surgeon will commonly elect to leave a closed suction drainage catheter to reduce the risk of collections and wound issues postoperatively. The wound is then closed in layers and skin closed in the fashion determined by the surgeon. At this point, let's move on to a brief discussion about the role of elective lymph node dissection. Uh, this is nicely summarized in Dr. Kingham's Sokna article in 2010. There are a number of randomized trials valuing the role of elective lymph node dissection. These include the intergroup trial as well as studies by Veronese, Sim, and Casanelli. These studies in general do not show a survival benefit associated with an elective lymph node dissection in the setting of a wide local excision. Moving on to a discussion of prophylactic isolated limb perfusion or ILP and isolated limb infusion or ILI. Initial studies with ILP with melphalan as a single agent demonstrated in the setting of normothermic temperatures an overall response rate from 30 to 60 percent, about half of which were complete responders. In 1969, hyperthermia was then added after in vitro data showed a synergistic cytotoxicity. The intergroup study evaluated 832 patients with melanomas of at least 1.5 millimeters. Patients were randomized to wide local excision with or without isolated limb perfusion with melphalan. The study authors demonstrated that there was a reduction in in-transit and regional lymph node metastasis. However, the presence of ILP with melphalan failed to result in a significant difference in distant relapse-free survival or overall survival. Based on data that the addition of tumor necrosis factor alpha to melphalan in the setting of hyperthermic isolated limb perfusion might help not only the frequency but also durability of complete pathologic response was being explored and for this reason in 2006, ACOG Z0020 was published. The study enrolled 133 patients with locally advanced melanoma. Subjects were randomized to melphalan with or without tumor necrosis factor alpha. However, the study was stopped early due to an increased number of grade 4 adverse events in the tumor necrosis alpha group. These toxicities included the need for amputation. Overall, however, the data that was available failed to demonstrate a difference in either survival or response rate. Before we move on to adjuvant therapies, I wanted to spend some time talking about just practical aspects of the management of a patient with melanoma that you might see in the clinic. Typically, biopsies can be conducted with a shave biopsy or a punch biopsy. We traditionally prefer a punch biopsy as to assess the full depth of the melanoma, but certainly we see a number of patients come into our office following shave biopsies Until 2018, the initial TNM staging of a melanoma was based on the presence not only of the depth of the melanoma known as the Breslow depth, but also on additional high-risk features such as the presence of lymph nodes, ulceration, and mitosis. However, in the most recent AJCC version 8 guidelines, mitosis is no longer considered a factor in the staging of a melanoma. When I first meet a patient in clinic, I perform a comprehensive history. I am asking about a history of sun exposure, personal or family history of melanomas or other cancers. My examination focuses on ruling out signs of regional or distant metastasis. Additionally, my comprehensive skin examination will assess for signs of in-transit disease, additional synchronous melanomas, and also to assess skin laxity, to determine margins. For patients who have an at least stage 1B or T2A or stage 2 melanoma, meaning for patients whose melanomas are at least one millimeter thick with any feature in clinically N0. I do not routinely order imaging or laboratory tests unless there are specific signs and symptoms dictating so. I discuss the role of wide local excision as per the guidelines and also discuss the role of sentinel node biopsy. We discussed that if the sentinel node biopsy is positive for regional disease, this will upgrade the tumor to stage 3. Accepting that all institutions have different institutional protocols, typically I do not offer central node biopsy for patients whose risk of having a positive central node is less than 5%. This would include patients with melanoma in situ, patients with clinical stage 1A tumors or T1A melanomas with depths less than 0.8 millimeters and no high-risk features including ulceration. Certainly when patients come in with shave biopsies and the lesions that are transected, this does lead to some dilemmas. And certainly when this happens, I have a discussion with the patient about the risks and benefits of their different treatment options. For patients who come in with a melanoma that's less than 0.8 millimeter thick and with high-risk features, including ulceration or other adverse features, including a high mitotic rate, particularly in the setting of younger age, lymphovascular invasion or a combination of these factors, or melanoma that's 0.8 to 1.0 millimeter thick with or without high-risk features, I will have a discussion about the risks and benefits of sentinel node biopsy to determine and arrive at a mutual consensus on treatment. If a patient ultimately is found to have stage 3 disease, at this time I will consider ordering imaging in order to rule out distant disease. Our standard is to order an MRI of the brain as long as there is no contraindication, as well as a PET scan. More and more, we're having challenges with having insurance approval of PET scans. And for this reason, if this is not approved or we are unable to obtain a PET scan, we will obtain a CT chest, abdomen, and pelvis with contrast. Certainly, regardless of the stage, we advise all patients to wear sun protective clothing and use uh, sunscreen. In addition, advise all first-degree family members to have baseline skin examinations. We're not going to spend a lot of time about the treatment of metastatic melanoma, but I want to provide you with just some summary points. Cytotoxic chemotherapy, such as decarbazine, have been widely studied. Typically, response rates are approximately 10%, and studies have failed to demonstrate an overall survival benefit with the use of cytotoxic chemotherapy in the survival of metastatic melanoma. Several important checkpoint molecules in cytotoxic T lymphocytes. The two most widely studied in melanoma include cytotoxic T lymphocyte antigen 4, or CTLA-4, and program cell death-1 or PD-1 receptors. CTLA-4 specifically is an immune checkpoint molecule that down-regulates pathways of T cell activation. Typically, co-stimulation via CD28 ligation transduces T cell activating signals. CTLA-4 ligation on activated T cells downregulates T cell responses. Therefore, blocking CTLA-4 ligation will enhance T-cell response. Ipilimumab or IPI is a fully human monoclonal IgG1 antibody that blocks CTLA-4 to promote anti-tumor immunity. In a study published by Dr. Hody in New England Journal in 2010, the authors evaluated 676 subjects with unresectable stage 3 or stage 4 melanoma with disease progression on other therapy. Subjects were randomized to IPI versus IPI with GP100 vaccine, versus GP100 vaccine alone. The primary endpoint of this randomized phase 3 trial was overall survival. The authors demonstrated that IPI plus or minus GP100 vaccine improved both the overall survival and progression-free survival compared to vaccine alone patients with metastatic melanoma who had undergone prior therapy. There was no additional improvement with the addition of the vaccine. Furthermore, the one- and two-year survivals that were demonstrated were superior to other previous randomized control trials in patients of similar stage. There was a 60% risk of adverse events that were mostly immune-related. This pivotal study led to the FDA approval of IPI for the treatment of advanced melanoma in 2011. Anti-PD-1 antibody therapy has also been widely studied in metastatic melanoma. In short, PD-1 ligand binding suppresses cytotoxic T lymphocytes. Nivolumab or Nivo is a human IgG4 monoclonal antibody against the overall response rate was 40%. In a second phase three study, the overall response rate was approximately 32% in melanoma patients whose disease had progressed through IPI. Pembrolizumab or PEMBRO is a monoclonal anti-PD-1 antibody. Randomized phase 2 trial compared Pembrolizumab to chemotherapy in patients who had metastatic melanoma resistant to ipilimumab. This study demonstrated that those patients receiving PEMBRO had a longer progression-free survival compared to those being treated with chemotherapy. The overall response rate was greater in the PEMBRO group compared to the, in the chemotherapy group. A phase 3 trial of 834 patients that were previously untreated with advanced melanoma were randomized to PEMBRO versus ipolipumab. Those patients receiving PEMBRO had improved overall survival and progression-free survival over those receiving ipolipumab. What is particularly nice about the PD-1 inhibitors is that they are particularly well-tolerated Based on the previous studies, both Nevo and Pembro are both approved by the FDA for the treatment of metastatic and unresectable advanced melanoma, regardless of BRAF status. About 40 to 60 percent of patients with cutaneous melanomas will have tumors that have BRAF mutations. BRAF is a serine threonine kinase protein in the MAP kinase pathway and is integral in the proliferation and survival of melanoma cells. About 80% of BRAF mutations are associated with a mutation at codon 600 where there is an amino acid substitution replacing valine for glutamic acid. This mutation leads to constitutive activation of the MAC kinase pathway, so inhibition of the mutation will lead to inactivation and result in cell growth arrest. In the BRIM-3 trial of venurafenib, which is a BRAF inhibitor, Dr. Chapman and colleagues reported on 675 patients with previously untreated metastatic melanoma. Patients were screened for the BRAF V600 mutation. They were subsequently randomized to venurafinib versus decarbazine. The primary endpoints of the study were overall survival and progression-free survival. There was a significant improvement in overall survival, response rate, and progression-free survival in those patients receiving venurafinib. In fact, the median overall survival was 13.6 months in those receiving venurafinib compared to 9.7 months for those in the dicarbazine arm. The response rate was also remarkably different in that 48% of patients had a response if receiving venurafinib compared to 5% in those receiving dicarbazine. This led to the 2011 approval of venurafinib for the treatment of advanced BRAF mutant melanomas. Since this time, additional agents have been approved for the treatment of metastatic melanoma. Similar to metastatic melanoma, traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy is rather ineffective for the adjuvant treatment of melanoma. Initially approved in 1995, high-dose interferon alpha-2 beta has long been the primary treatment modality for the adjuvant treatment of melanoma. One of the initial studies evaluating the adjuvant use of interferon was reported in ECOG-1684, in which patients with resected stage 2b or 3 melanoma received adjuvant interferon versus observation. The data of this study demonstrated a significant improvement in overall survival and recurrence-free survival in the interferon group. Since this time, a number of studies have been performed evaluating the role of adjuvant interferon, both in the high and low-dose settings. But ultimately, grouped analyses have failed to demonstrate an improvement in overall survival. There is a consistent improvement in recurrence-free survival. Ultimately, the therapy is associated with significant toxicity and flu-like symptoms, including severe fatigue and hepatic dysfunction. A recent study by Dr. Egermont in 2016 published in the New England Journal was a randomized phase 3 study of high-dose ipilimumab in patients with stage 3 melanoma following completion lymph node dissection. The data demonstrated that in those patients receiving adjuvant ipilimumab, the recurrence-free survival and overall survival was superior. This led to FDA approval for high-dose ipolipumab in the adjuvant setting in 2015. However, there was significant toxicity associated with this treatment regimen with 42% of patients experiencing grade 3 or 4 adverse events, primarily immune-related in nature, and 1.1% of patients in the ipolipumab arm died of treatment-related adverse events. What is interesting is that the dosing of IPI in this trial was 10 milligrams per kg, which was different than the 3 mg per kg in the metastatic setting. Even more recently, in 2017, a study by Weber et al. in the New England Journal reported a large randomized double-blind phase 3 trial of 906 patients with stage 3B, 3C, and 4 melanoma. Patients were randomized either to the PD-1 inhibitor NEVO or to ipilimumab. again dosed at the 10 mg per kg dosing schedule, for one year. The primary endpoint of the study was recurrence-free survival, which was superior at 70.5% compared to 60.8% in the NEVO arm. There was a significantly improved toxicity profile in the NEVO arm compared to that of the IPI arm. In December of 2017, NEVO was subsequently approved by the FDA for the treatment of resected stage 3 or 4 melanoma with a high risk of recurrence. Certainly, the last few years have seen a rapid expansion in our armamentarium for the treatment of melanoma, either in the adjuvant or metastatic settings. So I think with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap this podcast up. I just wanted to summarize with some take-home points for the treatment of melanoma. First, as it relates to surgical margin, no trial has demonstrated a survival difference with more aggressive surgical margins. Local recurrence, however, is associated with a poor overall survival, and randomized data on margin supports that we should resect one centimeter margin for melanomas less than one millimeter, a two centimeter margin for lesions of at least two millimeters, and no randomized trial has addressed differences in one or two centimeter margins for melanomas one to two millimeter deep. There are no randomized controlled trials assessing resection margins for deep or greater than four millimeter melanomas. There is no survival benefit to elective lymph node dissection or to prophylactic isolated limb perfusion. MSLT1 certainly taught us that the sentinel lymph node status was the single most important prognostic factor in patients with clinically node-negative disease. Its conclusions that survival was improved with immediate lymph node dissection in the setting of sentinel node-positive patients has subsequently been challenged, first by DCOG SLT trial, but even more recently, MSLT2 trial. This trial has demonstrated that there is no survival benefit to an immediate lymph node dissection compared to observation with ultrasound in patients who are found to have sentinel node positive disease. It further demonstrated that non-sentinel node status is also an important prognostic factor in those patients with sentinel node positive disease. We discussed in some detail the operative approach of wide local excision, sentinel node biopsy, and groin dissection. We have spent some time discussing who is eligible for a sentinel node biopsy based on the current NCCN guidelines, and we have discussed the role of staging, particularly staging for stage 3 cancers. We have finally concluded our discussion with a discussion on therapies for metastatic melanoma, including the role of checkpoint inhibitors such as ipilimumab and PD-1 inhibitors like NEVO and pembrolizumab. We've also discussed the role of BRAF inhibition. Finally, we've concluded with a discussion on the adjuvant therapies for resected melanoma, including the early data on interferon, followed by more recent data on ipilimumab and PD-1 inhibitors. Certainly, if you have any questions, please let me know. I'd be happy to answer them at any time. Thanks again for your time and your invitation to give this talk today on melanoma. Until next time, dominate the day.